Well, good evening, Line Podcast listeners. This is an unusual podcast. This is probably the most raw and honest Jen and I have been. We spend most of it talking about the Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa, which reached its finale today, I guess you'd call it, when the Prime Minister of Canada offered hours of testimony and uh, submitted himself to cross-examination. Our policy at the line has been that we would withhold judgment until the commission was done. We have a stake in this. Jen and I both covered the events. I was in Ottawa. She was in Coots, Alberta. We have some of our reputation for our new young outlet invested in the outcome of this. I'll be honest with you. I think what we have learned at POEC has largely upheld our reporting. I don't think it has entirely upheld it, though. There are some things that I am no longer convinced about. There's even one thing I think we got wrong. In this very long episode, get comfy, get yourself a drink, Jen and I talk about all that we've learned, all that has happened since, what we were right about, what we were wrong about, what we still don't know, and why the Attorney General of Canada hurt my feelings. All that and more on a very long, but we hope important episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. Well, I'm back and my computer will be fixed by tomorrow. Everybody had a good laugh at my expense last week. The little cable in the laptop case that connects from like the main board to the um, screen was uh, broken. So that and this that, and this is a repairable thing as opposed to something you have to get a new computer over. Yeah, it's oh. appar- apparently not even that hard to repair. Uh, it's just not going to arrive back at the shop until tonight. And I told him I'll pick it up tomorrow morning. So I, I still think that you were partially to blame for not uh, checking in your back your uh, laptop. That was honestly, I've had bad luck either way though. I mean, when I went to LaGuardia in June, I like a moron forgot my computer in the security claims area, and that was in my carry on. So I decided. On uh, Friday last week, I put my entire, I brought a carry-on bag, but I, my suitcase wasn't full. And at the last minute, I'm like, eh, I'm just going to sleep on the plane. So I opened it up, put in my carry-on bag and went to sleep and it broke. So basically I can't travel with a computer. I just need to have like a computer waiting for me in every destination I go to. Get a, get a Chromebook or something. Get like a, tra- a cheap and cheerful Chromebook travel computer. Uh, my kids have used Chromebooks. I'm not a huge fan. Mm. Fair enough. Anyway, we don't want to talk about this because there's lots and lots of other stuff to talk about, particularly well, POEC. Holy crap. What a within, week. The, within the last hour um, while we're filming this, we're going to try and get this podcast out uh, quick tonight. We're going to try and ride the coattails on this one a bit. Uh, had to, I just back POEC, had to get to the hockey rink for my kid, and now I'm back home. Um, very interesting. And I want to ask you a question before we get into any of the actual analysis. Mm-hmm. You and I have had a, a policy of not drawing any conclusions in, in a substantive way until this is over. We've noted things along the way, but in the big picture sense, we have not drawn any conclusions. And the reason for that is because we are going to subject our own um, reporting to a third party review. We got to find someone to who we whom we trust to, I, to. You know what? I actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I don't know if we should do a third party. I wonder if we should just pick it apart ourselves. I don't ourselves or get or get Potter to do or, do or someone like that. Like, we could ask fine. one of our friends, but I honestly think. It, it might be a more interesting exercise for the readers if we subject our own work to brutal criticism. Well, let's 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 put we'll a talk about that. It. We'll talk about that later. I don't think we need to talk about that, that on, um, our, on our podcast. But like, but but that's because I don't I don't want to go in and be like, well, we got everything right or we didn't get everything right when before we actually have a really full picture of what can be known here. I will say this though, and this is me. This is why I'm asking you 
philosophically when we want to start actually drawing some conclusions here. I think our reporting from the time of the crisis has held up remarkably well in the face of, of POEC. There are not, there's at least one thing that I was wrong about. And we can, we can talk about that kind of whenever we want to. Um, but overall, given, given the situation we were operating in and the, 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 the wild ride of it, I think our coverage has aged really, really well. And throughout the, uh, the testimony, it's been an interesting experience for me, especially. And I know I've been watching it more closely than you, but I sort of had a checklist in my mind of things I was waiting to see either proven or disproven. It's just been an interesting experience to go, aha, ding, aha, ding, and then, eh, cross. It's been interesting watching stuff unfold. So what do we do? Do we so, wait I mean, for the I, final I, I, report I to come out in February? I wouldn't say, okay, so, I mean, I haven't been following POEC because, of course, this has been your wheelhouse. So there's been no reason for both of us to do this. Um, and I would probably want to go back and read everything that we did in February again. I think that if you were to level a criticism at, at what we wrote and what we published, it would probably be that there was an inference that there was a more organized organized threat on the ground than I think this inquiry has demonstrated to be so. I, my impression from not just not just our reporting, but also from like the conversations that we had had and the conversations that I've had elsewhere, was that there was a sense that there was an organized quasi-terrorist alt-right threat embedded in an otherwise fairly benign protest. And um, that would eventually emerge or become obvious. And no evidence to date from this inquiry makes that sound credible. Now, specifically from the Ottawa stuff, we know that there was a credible threat from Coots because that the, the RCMP did a wiretap and they raided them before the Emergencies Act was ever called. But from the Ottawa stuff, I'm not getting the impression from any of the evidence that's been submitted to, to this date that, you know, there were definitely some tough characters. I mean, you reported on that from your own observation. There were definitely some tough characters, some rough dudes um, present there. But I didn't get the impression that there was a sort of a proud boys level uh, organized alt-right group operating behind the scenes in this protest. And that that evidence hasn't emerged for me. I had, that I think is is maybe not it's not a criticism, it's just an observation really of 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 what I would say. Um I, I have two things to say in reply to this. I think when was the last time you went back and read our stuff? From oh, February? I haven't. So this is this is why I'm saying like this is why I'm throwing it out there from this is very impressionistic. And yeah. it's not just from you or not just from what I wrote. It's 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 based on the conversations we were having at the time. It was based on other other reporting. I was expecting someone at this inquiry to come out and say And it was that man. Yeah, yeah. or or like 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 we had we had solid evidence that, you know, Proud Boys or someone of that level you know, the third, whatever, guard, Odin's, whatever, fucktardness um, uh, group was, there was maybe a hundred of these people in Ottawa and we knew that they were preparing for some kind of violent act. They were preparing to do something specific, but there's been nothing to demonstrate that level of organization or specificity to come out of this yeah. so far, as far as I can tell. So I don't think, I don't know if that's a knock on our reporting. I, I, I just think it's just, that is one, my big picture bird's eye view of what I'm seeing so far. 
this this is an interesting position for me to be in because it was primarily my reporting and obviously i have a vested interest in being right um i have reread all of our stuff um my three dispatches from ottawa i've read your dispatch from the border in alberta and your coots which was just before the shit hit the fan there too your timing was impeccable yeah um and i've also read the dispatches we were writing at the time also we had a couple of other pieces written by people in the legal community who or you know think think tanky community who, who yeah. wrote for us at the time i went back and i reread all of them at the, the outset of this because i wanted to have it all fresh of mind and i'm gonna say to you i think you used a good word you said impressionistic um mm. i think when you go back and reread our coverage you will be pleasantly surprised how careful we were we and we were very careful yeah. and i think I think we're more careful than your impressions would tell you. And probably I had a really interesting conversation a couple of months ago with someone who was uh, telling me how much they liked my work. And I'm, you know, I'm like, Hmm, it's nice. Um, but I kind of came out of that conversation thinking, I don't think I actually said that. And, and when I went back and I reread what I'd actually written, I kind of gave old, me a pat on the back and i was like thank god one of the things i honestly believe in is doing my future self a favor whenever possible and there is there was there was a criticism that was made against me at the time which was that i had written um things that could not be substantiated which is true. I was speculating at times and I was saying stuff that was um, using off record or on background sources. But the specific criticism that was made of me at the time was that I had said that these protests were being for, uh, directed or coordinated by foreigners. Hmm. And yeah, I don't the, I don't think you actually said that at all. No. And this uh, at the time, I replied to, to the individual on on social media and I said, no. That's not what I said. And I said, you are criticizing me based on a narrative that seems to have formed in people's minds. Because I yeah. think a lot of people did think there was foreign direction of this. Well, and that was that was, that was was the uh, implication of what the government was doing. There was a reason why they needed to fund all of these foreign bank accounts, because yeah. the, there, was, there was the implication here that this was a bunch of alt-right Americans or alt-right whatevers throwing money into um, these protests. Now, again, that's not to do with our reporting. We didn't report that because that that wasn't our, our understanding. But that's also not come to fruition. There's 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 been nothing in Poet to suggest that that was the case. It looks like the majority of the funding was very much coming from small source donors, at least from what we can prove or see. What I it's funny. This is it's, so it's funny. So I was accused. And I was said that like, this is irresponsible. Gurney is is going further than the evidence. Is saying that there's foreign involvement, and I just quoted back to my, to my critic here the precise sentence fragment from my article. So let me just read it to you, Jen. I have it here in front of me. Um, uh, this is a sentence describing the so-called logistics camp at um, Coventry Road. Uh, police uh, police are very much aware of the site, and they are very worried about the presence of a hard right wing organized faction that isn't there to protest mandates and vaccine passports, but to directly create conflict with the government. This hard right element probably includes some non-Canadians. That was the total extent of any commentary I made about possible foreign involvement. Mm -hmm. But what I have found in the months since the crisis is that my piece 
kind of became fused in the minds of people who mm. were really worried about that. Yeah. And the, the, I have precisely one sentence in thousands of words I wrote from Ottawa and the sentence is conditional. And also, I mean, all the stuff that you wrote for us, um, and this is where I'm being totally fair to you, was based on your own direct observation. Like, or like the conversations is, I had. Or the you. conversations yeah. you were having. So, I mean, like, if that was a legitimate concern, like, I, I, this would, you didn't create this whole cloth, all right? You, you, so this isn't a fault on your reporting. But I would note that there has been no evidence of any kind of organized alt-right group. Well. I'm at a poet. Well. Unless I'm wrong. Am I wrong? Not necessarily. Okay. What has been referred to repeatedly in testimony, particularly by um, senior police and intelligence leaders, is the presence of far-right, alt-right individuals and factions within the protest. Okay. But they have not disclosed their identity, and it's redacted in the documents. So, so okay. fair enough. Am fair I right enough. or am I wrong? I, I don't uh, know. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So like I said, this isn't me criticizing. This is just this is just me sort of doing a bird's eye impressionistic sort of view of what it is. I don't think I think that we were very careful. And I think that you were very like both of us, of course, more you than me. I had the easier job. Coots was an easier thing to to to, to describe. But well, we were focusing very much balls going there, though. Oh, yeah. But well, yeah, that's fine. But um, it wasn't just me who did that. But uh, I would say is that, um, you know, you and I both decided to do very much straightforward man on the ground reporting. Like this was yeah. not, we, we weren't doing column writing there. We weren't being speculative. We were just being like, look, we're going to the sites and this is what happened and this is what we saw. That's it. What is very frustrating to me, and I was speaking with a colleague about this uh, just by text. We were texting during the, the testimony today. The final verdict on this now rests in the hands of the historian's 30 mm -hmm. or 40 years from now, some keen students will get access to declassified documents. Mm -hmm. um, we found out this week when the CSIS director, David Vigneault, was testifying, we found out two things. That there was classified information that was not part of the CSIS brief that was presented to the government that was apparently material to their decision to invoke the emergencies act i don't know if it was like a whole briefing full of information i don't know if it was a factoid like we don't know we just know that there was classified information that the cabinet included in their deliberations and we also know that there was a legal finding of fact or um s definition something that the cabinet referred to and both of those things were withheld we be I believe they so were. So it's impossible to actually gauge whether or not the invocation of the Emergencies Act met the legal test. There is one thing. The Jen, two crucial pieces of information have been redacted or withheld. Yeah, there Super. is one thing, Jen. I can tell you with confidence that I was wrong about in my reporting. Hmm. And since we've already, like, we I wasn't sure at the beginning if we were going to go that deeply into this, but we seem to be. So let's just yolo. Let's do it. I overestimated Peter slowly. And I had this sense, and this was based not on my gut feeling, this was based on my conversations that slowly understood that there was a challenge and he was having a hard time communicating that to other people. And I think that's still defensible, but it's also become clear in everything we've learned since that slowly completely lost command of this very quickly. And my impression was that he was a man trying to push a boulder up the hill and I still think my impression of his assessment was largely accurate based on conversations I was having. Um, and by the way, I never spoke with slowly, never did. Mm -hmm. I, I did not 
I'm a national affairs writer. I don't have municipal government contacts in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. I could like, if this had happened all in Toronto, I could have done that. I would have known enough people within the Toronto political and policing community that I would have had direct access sources. I didn't in Ottawa. I was mm-hmm. relying largely on federal or provincial sources. And uh, I, I overestimated the effectiveness of Peter Slowly. I don't think mm. I got his conclusion wrong, but the one thing I was absolutely wrong about um, was I thought he was had his shit together more than he did. So I told you before, reading through all the testimonies, like, ding, I was right about that. Ding, I was right about that. Eh, the X I give myself is that. The issue of an organized, possibly foreign-influenced or led group within the broader movement I can't tell you. We know, okay, so, we know so, there so was a hard, we know we know there was a far right faction there. That's been testified to in open testimony and documentary evidence. There were people in specific individuals linked to specific organizations that both the police and CSIS were actively monitoring, and it's in the documents and it's redacted. So I can't tell you. So if anyone on the inside so wants to give me a what's call, the, what's what's your takeaway from Poet? What happened here? That's a fascinating question. Um, well, let's answer that. Let's, let's answer. The, the, there's three questions in one. There is it legally justified? Will Trudeau politically survive? And what the fuck happened? Which is kind yeah, of the question I, you just asked. I, I think. I think that the first answer is unknowable because the key details have been withheld or redacted. Correct. Two. Will Will Trudeau survive? Yes. Yes. Three, um, uh, what happened? Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm narrowing in. What actually happened here? You had the best way of describing this. What did I? You, you did. Actually, you know what? I'll say this. Sandy Garasino of the National Observer has the best one, like one tweet summary of POEC, but you at the time had the best analysis of what happened. You said that the government had been knocked into stun-fucked stasis. That was your exact phrase. And that I, and I think, yeah, no, it was smart. Uh, we, should, we should hire her. Um, that's kind of my impression coming out of POEC. And one of the things uh, that I wrote, it's funny, I was telling you a minute ago that I overestimated slowly. It's really nuanced because in that piece where I was telling people, I think slowly is shouting a warning and no one is listening to him. I was right that no one was listening to him because one of the things that's emerged from POEC is all the internal communications, all these guys talking to each other. We've seen their emails. We've seen their text messages. We've seen minutes of meetings and readouts of private phone calls. And something that jumped out at me is how we were remarkably late into this thing while all the relevant levels of government and all the relevant agencies could not find their ass with both hands and a flashlight. Hmm. There was stun-fucked stasis, as you so put it there. Nobody understood what was happening. And you asked me what happened. The executive decision-making functions of various levels of Canadian government and various Canadian government agencies failed. And I just don't mean failed as in, oops, I mean, failed as in became non-functional. And for a period of days, weeks even, 
were not able to be functional. And I, I want to make a comment that is me relying on my military history background and, and listeners and viewers who have any knowledge of military history will, will understand what I mean by this. I know this is not really your thing, but I think, I think you'll intuitively grasp it. Every once in a while, you have a unit that hasn't lost many of its men, but if the colonel in command either panics or breaks down or is killed, like maybe the bad guys get a lucky artillery shot on the headquarters tent, you can have a unit that still has all its effective strength that becomes non-functional hmm. because the chain of command is disrupted or paralyzed in a way, and there are either not the right personality types or the right procedures in place to in, uh, come up with a new chain of command on the fly. And I think it's a very technical way I'm describing that, but I think that's what happened in February. There was an assumption, and we can say this with a fact now, widely shared by government officials, that what was going to happen in Ottawa was going to be a protest lasting a few days. Mm -hmm. I think it is fucking insane that that was the function, that, that that was the conclusion, because you and I, in our houses in Toronto like, and no. Calgary, yeah, no, we knew better. Yeah. So that's an, an, an unanswered question. Why, why did, and this happens sometimes, Jen, sometimes you give someone all the right information and they draw the wrong conclusion from it. They well, had, I think they assumed the this right was going to be another, you know, the pipe, what's the, the pipeline protests when the, all the truckers went to oh, the Ottawa. No, this was the pipeline protest when it was a bunch of the, uh, the it was a the, rolling the, thunder. When no, they when... the the yellow vest, yellow vest version. Remember oh, okay. this? Yeah, and when, I don't remember. When, and and then Andrew Shear was was chatting there, and then Faith Goldie got up on the stage and the whole deal. I think they thought it was going to be another version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like, and what's interesting though, Jen, is when you actually look at the the intelligence information, which is now public. Like this thing is a gold mine for journalists and historians. Like we can read the police intelligence assessments. Quite a few of them are saying, no, these guys are going to stay. You don't drive 3,000 kilometers across yeah. the country for a two-day event. Yeah. And they, these guys, the, the convoyers, were openly talking about their intention to stay. They were not subtle about this. No. And so that was the first failure. When, they, when the, the convoy didn't pack up and leave kind of on Sunday, Monday, as everyone expected, two things happened at once. First of all, because the government, and I'm using that term broadly here, Ottawa, Ontario, feds, whatever you want it to be, the Canadian state generically didn't move quickly. They forfeited momentum. Hmm. And the psychological inertia and momentum was 100% on the side of the uh, con convoyers. Mm -hmm. And there was no operational plan in place of what to do if they didn't leave. And like I said to you, Jen, in, in, an, in an effective unit, whether it's police or military or corporate or a sports team, like well-led units can pivot on the fly in the face of adversity. This was our plan. Well, that ain't happening. What's the new plan? Let's go boys. That didn't happen. And what ended up happening instead, and this is remarkable, was about a 10 to 12 day period of stunt fuck stasis at multiple layers of the Canadian federal government. The initial failure and the worst failures were at the municipal level. The city of Ottawa and the Ottawa police service dropped the ball. And, and the national, the national um, commission, the NCC has got to take some ownership there because that it was technically their jurisdiction. It was 100% their jurisdiction. Okay. And 
And that was where I think the original leadership breakdown happened, where the Sunfuck Stasis happened first. What happened next was that the provincial government of Doug Ford, for reasons we don't really know, because Doug the coward didn't show up and testify, Ontario just new phone who di who dis, like <laughs> the government of Ontario just went poof, a little smoke, Roadrunner, meep meep, just gone. So the city of Ottawa was on its own. And it was in complete chaos. The, 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 the leadership at the police and civic level in Ottawa collapsed into just non, into, like I said, it failed. Like, and I don't mean, oops, it became non-functional for a period of weeks. And I know that people have had the opinion, and this is a little bit the shamrockers on Twitter, but I, it's also some smart people as well, that the feds were the adults in the room, that they swooped in for the rescue. They gave everybody time to get it figured out. And when that didn't work, they, they stepped up I and they got it done. I don't see any evidence that there were any adults in the room here. Looking at the communications of federal officials, which again, we have now, this is incredible. Like we, we've had more transparency in the last six weeks than we've had in the last 20 years. It has become clear to me that the federal government itself was also stun fuck stasis. And it's a little bit different for them because they had no direct operational oversight, especially of the Ottawa information. Like that's two orders of government down for them. So I don't blame them for not making good executive decisions at first. It's not their job. But what did astonish me and worry me reading these documents is how little they understood the problem as late into the crisis as, as they did. So even like two weeks into this thing, we can look at like text messages and emails from cabinet guys going like, so is there a plan? Who's running this? Who should we talk to about well, this? Well, even, even I found that startling when I was listening to a little bit of uh, Christia Freeland's testimony when she was like, the, all of the people at Bay Street had to get her in a room and be like, this is making us look like a joke. And I'm going like, you hadn't figured that out by now? Like, no. You needed no. Bay Street to come and tell you that. Like, I, I, yeah. And it's just, it's when you actually look, I've like, there are thousands of documents. I haven't read a fraction of them yet. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I've read mm -hmm. a bunch of them, but mm -hmm. what emerged from me really late into the crisis, I told you a couple of days ago that there's not uh, those ding moments where something I had explicitly written had been confirmed. Mm -hmm. So I was in Ottawa, if I remember correctly, like the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. And it was like, it was a document on the 8th or, or 9th in February, where it was just clear by the questions going around among these federal staffers and officials that they did still not have a good situational awareness of the status of what was happening in Ottawa. Mm. That there was a lot of basic stuff about both the protest and the response that they did not know. And again, I, I do absolve uh, the federal government for not having swift executive action during the during the crisis because it wasn't their job they were space cadets they were clued out like yeah. it was like there was this whole thing happening and they were freaked out about it like they were talking about it a lot because whoa there's all these trucks right by our buildings and there was concerns like if any one of these trucks had had a bomb in it it could have taken a big bite out of the federal government it was but, I, right but I also wonder to, 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 to what extent there was a there was a cultural divide that made that space cadetiness like if the, if these were, for example, environmental protesters who had blocked up the streets of Ottawa, I think that they would have been fairly attuned to it. But these people were so um, divorced from their own political and ideological spheres that I think that they were just kind of oblivious. Um, I think you're right about that, but I I hmm, 
I think you're right and you're wrong. I think okay. you're right about their understanding of the protesters, their motivations, who they were, where they came from, how to speak to them. Yeah. I, I think you're wrong. I don't think it mattered if it was like an Elvis impersonator convention or an invasion of space aliens or like an ISIS terror cell. I, I don't assume the federal government was going to perform any better in terms of understanding and getting a, like a, a re reaction room going. I think one of the things we've seen repeatedly in recent years is that the federal Canadian government cannot pivot in crisis response in a time frame any less than weeks. Mm, okay. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a cultural thing. I don't know if it's a quirk of the current government. Maybe it's the institutions, right? Like maybe the chain of command in Ottawa is so bloated and bureaucratic that information can't circulate quickly. I, I will have to go when we eventually write our kind of definitive piece on this, I'm going to have to take, like go through, get a timeline together, put some actual yeah. notes together, yeah. but I'm going to, as a ballpark figure now and listeners and viewers don't hold me to this. I could be off by a couple of days. I would still say about two weeks into this thing, the federal government was still in the fog of war. It's like, well, Hey, what's, what's going on? Is there a plan? Who should we talk to? Who's is, is Ford doing something? Is, is the city doing something? Do we need to get involved? Should we be calling people? Um, you asked at the very beginning, this is a very long answer to a very simple question. You asked what happened. I want to add a wrinkle to this. Okay. This thing, this thing got different when the borders started to be blockaded. Yeah. The ambassador bridge is what radically and, changed. I mean, all of them. Um, and, and, and it mattered for a couple of reasons. First of all, it actually kind of for the first time directly engaged the federal government. International mm -hmm. border crossings are federal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. That also immediately presented economic and diplomatic and even arguably national security concerns that are at the federal level in different parts of the federal government that before would have said, Wellington Street's not our problem. This is municipal mm -hmm. law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Different well, doesn't the NCC federal? And wasn't this one that, of the competing that's dispatch. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's, then, 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 then that six police forces that each right. own little bits of territory that right. are not physically contained. And so it, then it becomes easier to pass the buck between, well, this is your oh, problem. Yeah. This is your problem. This is your problem. Right. The other thing that happened um, during when the, when the borders got blockaded and I want to, I want to stress this for you. And I want to stress this for our listeners and viewers. This is not something I can prove. This is something I'm really confident in, but I cannot prove it. Okay. I think private sector industry picked up the phone and called Doug Ford and yelled at him. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure that that's the case. I think of course that, they I, would. I think people intuitively know that's yeah. probably what happened, but I don't yeah. have documents that I can use. All of a sudden, all of a sudden I'm losing X GDP per day because I can't get, you know, auto parts across the Ambassador Bridge. Now we have basically an international diplomatic and economic crisis. And it's also the kind of thing that Premier Doug gives a shit about. Yeah. He didn't give a shit about inconveniencing a bunch of bureaucrats in downtown Ottawa, but you're oh, shutting no. down I'm, assembly I'm, there, lines there, I can, I can tell you Ottawa. here in Alberta, everybody was just laughing at, at Ottawa. We were like, ha ha. I mean, I yeah. wasn't, but people were. People, people were doing assholes. that everywhere. Yeah. Um. But Doug Ford gets a call from the, the, the private sector unions, the, the guys running the assembly lines, the yeah. logistics companies that are laying yeah. off workers because they can't run their fleets back and forth across the border. No, All of a sudden, real fucking quick, the Ontario government's engaged. Yep. And so, you, again, answering your question in a very long-winded way, my main takeaway of what we learned from POEC 
and this is a statement of the obvious, is that what happened in February was really complicated. And that was something I really strove to get through in my reporting. There were different elements all wrapped up in that. But I think we can also divide it into two time periods, before borders, after borders. And the before border period is sort of Wellington Street is blocked. Ottawa collapses into complete stunfuck stasis. The Ontario government goes, you're on your own, folks. Bye. Justin's problem. It's his capital city. Um, and there's this weird two-week period of buck passing and ass covering and confusion and, 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 and stunfuck stasis. But then the borders get closed. We kick it up a notch. And that is when two things happened. I think more competent agencies got involved, CSIS, OPP, RCMP, kind of at that point, they stepped in and took over. And it also forced the politicians to get serious and start communicating with each other. So, I mean, also, I mean, the, 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 the weird communication delays and gaps, even between Bill Blair and Rick McIver in Alberta was totally indicative of the level of fucked up in this of this just would, the spiteful um, the spiteful lack of communication between the federal government and, and and a provincial government reaching out for help really struck me um paul wells did a great piece well, on this and if you haven't yeah if you haven't read paul wells's piece you should so basically here's my very simplistic bird's eye view of what happened here truckers roll into town there's bad information they stay longer than everybody expects them to probably longer than a lot of the truckers themselves expected to oh, be yeah. able to get away with it they probably didn't momentum, right yeah they the longer probably they didn't stayed think. the longer they stayed yeah and also they probably didn't think they were going to get away with this but the longer they got away with it woohoo we'll set up we'll set up some bouncy castles and some you know hot hot stubs whatever this also the amount of time also gives the these elements likely um, a time for some unknown number of real extremists to begin to infiltrate this group. Yeah. Um, and even if it's just 10 of them, like 10 of them can do problems. And of course, if these people are embedding themselves in otherwise uh, naive or unknowing protesters, especially protesters with kids, you can see how this gets ugly real quick. So now everybody starts to freak out, but they're in a weird state of stunfuck crisis. Nobody wants to be the one who accidentally shoots a kid from a front, sitting in a truck. So everybody just winds up going, I don't know what to do, and I don't want to take responsibility. Then what happens is the um, shit gets real down and out. The borders start to start to clog up. Industry starts to freak out. Um, the uh, Americans start to freak out, and we know that that's when there starts begins to be high level conversations between Biden Trudeau and Biden and, talking directly. Yep, exactly. And and Freeland and I think someone from the the, the American side start to tr talk directly. Also, the just before the um or the uh, announcement of the Emergencies Act, that's when you have the border raid at Coots because, of course, the RCMP finally had enough information and evidence to demonstrate a real violent threat was starting to form there. <clears throat> they were they raid a nearby um, house down at the border crossing at Coots. They find guns. They have lots and lots of evidence to charge people for conspiracy there, and that court case is ongoing. We know that that is not made up, by the way. Yeah. Um, there is a real violent threat there that then raises alarm bells about the possibility of a small number of, of extreme violent actors within the Ottawa sphere, but we don't know that, to what extent they're for sure. Um, it's impossible for us to know whether or not the legal threshold for security threat was met here. 
I'm still leaning toward it sounds like it probably wasn't and that much of this probably could have been cleared using ordinary police forces. But if you want to look back at this more holistically, you have a federal government that's in stun fuck stasis needs to demonstrate politically and also yeah. for its American and, and other economic actors that it's taking this stuff seriously. And so they invoke the Emergencies Act in order to look tough. I think you have it bang on. Okay. And we will eventually flesh this out in 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 more detail. Um I will. I, I want to add a couple of footnotes to that, though, and I, I agree with your take entirely. One of the interesting footnotes that I wonder about is whether or not the Coots raid saved Canada. It shocked the right people, and I don't mean the government. One of the themes I wrote about a lot was how there were two groups of people in the Ottawa convoy. Mm. The well-meaning, kind of dumb people and the hard men. And I think anytime I or someone else tried to tell the well-meaning angry people with the bouncy castles that there were hard men there, like, oh yeah, well, you Trudeau, you're bought and paid for media. The Coots raid happens and all those rifles are there. I think that knocked a lot of people, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want to be associated with this. Well, and I, I can tell you that that was absolutely true in Coos, In Alberta, yeah. Because, because the, up and the vast majority of, the, I said, there were literally two separate blockades, two physically separate yeah. blockades, which I think was not understood very well. But, um, you, you know, in, in the first blockade, which was quite a bit north of the actual border crossing, it was very, I mean, these people didn't like the CBC, like they were kind of rough and tough, but like, and I was told, like, don't don't go advertising your CBC appearances around these people. But like, these were very, you know, we're going to have they'd set up a bar. They, you know, they were doing barbecues. They were doing saunas like this was a very it was Wellington Street It was Wellington Street. And then you physically went a few kilometers south of that. And things got there. real weird real quick south of that. Um, but then, but even but even there, like you had you went into like their 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 headquarters and you would had. Hutterite women bringing baked goods and kids pictures on the walls but then you'd have like guys talking about how you know the wef is gonna come like you know what i mean like it was it was getting creepy down there so i i, I can tell you that when the the guns were found down there that was a huge wake-up call for the rest of the rest of that blockade and the northern the, blockade packed it the up. northern blockade packed it up and like even when the northern blockade packed it up they were hugging the rcmp officers on the way out these people were not a threat or didn't want to be a threat. So they all of a sudden went, whoa, no, we're gone. Um, and uh, the only people who were really left out of that crowd were people who started to get really conspiratorial after that and started to claim that the border blockade was some kind of RCMP planned. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but even among that group, even among the Southern group, the number of people who had real demonstrable violent intent you know, I think it was four or five people. Like it was not the majority, even of the Southern group, but the I, Southern group was a much, much tougher crowd than the, than the Northern group. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the listeners and the viewers here, something I've never publicly revealed before, but this oh. is something I was told on background during the crisis. And I never put it into my dispatches because I didn't think it was important, mm -hmm. but my best source of information on how many actual hard asses there were in Ottawa was less than 20. Fewer than um, 20. Yeah, that would make sense. And yeah. the, the concern wasn't that these guys were going to kid up and storm Parliament. It was that they were going to find some yob in the crowd with a sob story, pump them full of Jacks, Daniels, get them all angry, and then provoke a fight with a cop. Yeah. Like, that was the concern. 
Um, this was not, I, don't, the, I always thought that the, despite all the sort of crazy rhetoric that came out of the convoy stuff, a lot of that was just predicated and rooted in just total lack of understanding and how our systems work and function. Yeah, I never thought this, that this was January 6th. This wasn't 6th. a civics class reunion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and this, and this also wasn't January 6th. I don't think that was the risk. We weren't worried about an actual coup de grace here. But the concern was, was street violence. That was always the concern. There's a term in one of my dispatches small cadre of hardened spree brawlers yeah. that yeah that was the concern not that and, it was and you, look at, and you look at the crowd with kids especially with kids being in the protester crowd you can see how that gets real ugly real quick and there's another thing that i would want to point out here not that i'm trying to um, foment um sympathy for the convoyers necessarily but i do think that this this fact has gotten really lost and that is the convoyers were not responsible for a single act of um, pr uh, pr pr prosecutable violence. The people, who, in fact, overwhelmingly, the convoys were more likely to be victims of violence. And there were, I think, two incidents. Of... I don't know if that's true. I do no, know there that were, the Ottawa there were police two, have no... said there was an increase in reported crime. Oh, an increase in reported crime. Okay, I don't. I'm uh, not aware of any actual charges that have met. No, me neither. Outside, outside of the coot situation, I'm not aware of yeah. any actual charges. So, but I will say, yeah, no, I, yeah, been, you're right about that. Uh, up until been... the clearing operation, I don't think there were a lot of charges. Fair enough. But the, but however, I believe there were two incidents where the convoyers were were mowed down by anti-convoy protesters by in vehicles across Canada. I know there was one in Manitoba, and I, I, I oh Manitoba, there was. yeah, yes, there was there was a case where an anti-convoy literally yeah. plowed into the crowd. That so, was at the in Winnipeg, right? The legislature mm -hmm. at, the, at the legislature. Yeah, wow, oh, maybe, I don't no, I really it, remember was, that, but think, it rings I a bell. Think it, I think it was at the, actually the border crossing down in Manitoba. I have to double okay. check that. But I think there was actually two incidents like that. So there were there were incidences of convoyers being the victims of very violent and and purposeful attacks. In hindsight, you know, hindsight being hindsight, but that has been lost in a lot of this as well. Well, you know, to me, Jen, and this this is sort of something that is a through line of all the coverage I was writing, including the first essay I wrote even before the convoy started, because I wrote an essay, you and I, remember, this is funny, the listeners might not know this, but we were, we didn't expect this thing to last for weeks. And for personal family reasons, I was not able to be in Ottawa when this thing was starting. And I wrote an essay where I kind of tried to set up the, the flavor and, and, and the mood. And um, I honestly believed that this thing would blow over in like a week. Because and we then, assumed that our governments were more competent than they were. Oh, we, we know better now. Yeah when this thing was still going on like two weeks later i remember you and i having a very specific conversation on like a sunday afternoon where i had not yet decided to go because we were thinking hour by hour this thing was gonna end mm -hmm. i had dinner with my family on sunday night and it still wasn't over and my my son's hockey wasn't on at the time and my mom was available to help get my kids to and from school and I called you up and I'm like, I'm just going to go. And it, like, Ottawa's like a four hour drive, right? Like, it's yeah, like, I'm going to get, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some clothes in the bag, get in the car and go. <laughs> um, and what I, what I just think is remarkable about all of this is again, first of all, me in Toronto had a better situational awareness of the situation in Ottawa than our federal government did up until that time. What the fuck? Like, I think the RCMP and CSIS probably had a pretty good sense of what was going, but that information was not getting up to the cabinet level, hmm. which is something we should think about. Um, and I, I think to your point about, um, about all of this, 
uh, about about the violence and and the interpretation of all of this, I didn't think, I still don't think to this day the convoy is well understood, and because maybe maybe they can't be well understood. To some extent, it was a bit of a mob. Oh yeah, we didn't, and yeah, and I think what what you were saying a minute ago about like some of the uh, of the violence heading back towards the convoy. One of the themes of my writing, your writing, and some of the uh, other contributors we asked to contribute is nothing more or less foundational than the rule of law. Because when you lose control, when the state loses control of a section of its territory, the rule of law ceases to function and everything becomes an exercise in power. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what was starting to happen. Yes. And it was, it was Mike Moffitt of the Ivy Business School, um, a housing expert I talk to often for interviews on housing policy, but he also lives in Ottawa. And he and I were tweeting on Friday and he noted, and God bless him for doing this, he noted that near the end of the crisis, um, there was sort of like a posse. I don't know how else to call it. A group of Ottawa residents organized by the thousands and closed in on a protest site and dispersed it while the police Hmm. sort of stood back and like watched it. You never want to have a powder keg where the only thing that will set it off is your least emotionally mature drunk guy throwing a punch. Hmm. And that's the situation repeated successive failures of Canadian government allowed this country to get. That's why I said and it makes and it and it makes perfect sense because I mean even in Alberta if 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 the police had been unable to open coots over any length of time eventually some people just would have started showing up. I remember in Alberta and it seems so quaint now um the Wet'suwet'en um uh, blockades of of mm-hmm. rail lines I don't remember if it was Calgary or Alberta, but somewhere. Uh, yes, so it, was Calgary it, was, it wasn't. It wasn't Alberta. People just started showing up and dismantling, dismantling the barricades. Yeah, if if the police won't do it, we'll do it. Yeah, and there and was the police one... were freaking out because they were like, you they're know, losing... this. Well, they're losing control of the situation, but at the same time, that that can go bad, pear shaped so quickly and so easily that because they didn't one guy be, throws a punch. shot. Yeah, exactly. Bad I scene. Think... And I, I am, um, let's go deep philosophy here. Not that right. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to quote any dead French people at you here, but I mean, core basic foundational philosophy. And this is listeners, viewers, line supporters. We love you all. I'm about to expose you to some pretty deep mat here. So prepare yourselves. Jen, you've seen worse. Definitely. Everything that we know and cherish rests on a foundation of security. Every society's first priority is food. Its next priority is security. And they don't care always what that security is. It can be martial law under a dictatorship. It can be tribal allegiances. Like we still hear parts of the world, right? Where like, well, you know, like my sister got raped by your brother. Therefore, you must give us your cousin to rape and then we'll exchange money. Like tribal justice systems. We have parts of the world where there are criminal gangs that kind of have an effective vengeance-based security, right? Mm-hmm. In the West, we have police, courts, and prisons. Like, but it And these us... were institutions that took some time to set up. It took thousands of years 
until we came up with the idea of a public police force thousands of years yeah of actually people history. don't realize how no. recent a pu- public police force a civilian public police yeah it's not it's not it's not even 200 years i think the uh what was the, the London, London force? The Peel I Report. I think it was 1867, wasn't it? I'm going to look it up right now. The Peel Report policing. The Peel Let's Report. See. <coughs> Peel Report. Yeah, it, it was not that long ago. It was it was 17. It was 8, 19th century. I can tell you that. Uh, why can't I find the damn thing? Um, oh, because it thinks I mean Peel Region. My Google is. Um, is London, Munis, yeah, there we go. There we go. Peel Report, Police United Kingdom. Um, wow, God, it's giving me all these anacronyms. History of Policing United Kingdom. This is such, such Metropolitan Police Act of 1829. Okay, so I was right about 200 years ago. Okay, fine. Well, here we go. Oh, here you're gonna fine. math me, man. Fine. The- Sir Robert Peel was the Home Secretary in 1822 yep. when he published his report that led to the Metropolitan Police Act in 18. 18- oh, and and prior to that, just so you know, rich people had police. Of course, Basically, they, they had, they the had rich, hired guns. Yeah, the rich people all banded together in their rich communities and had like I think it was some some uh, Blue Street Runners. They were called runners essentially that would that would act as private security for their yeah. communities. It was the poor people who didn't have police. And I mean, think about like. And I know we're, we're, like, we're getting into complicated stuff here, right? But I mean, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, a, only a little more than a century ago, was an armed paramilitary light cavalry force. And, and that was a stark contrast to the, to the municipal um, a metropolitan yeah. police force, for which a lot of our municipal police forces are, are, are rooted in. The RCMP, I think, was, was essentially a gendarme. It was, it was, it was, they were, they were dragoons. They were, yeah. they were, they were mounted light infantry that, mm-hmm. and you look at, you look at the United States, for instance, which <laughs> were, where like the wild West, where you would round up a posse, or maybe if you were lucky, you'd have a regiment of the United States cavalry in your area. That was only about 130 years ago, 140 years ago in some areas. The, this is like, this is where I'm going to going like deep into the, in staring into the darkness of my soul here the broader public does not know how fucking recent this is. If human history was like one day, we invented modern policing like four minutes ago. (laughs) And if you lose it, people do not settle for anarchy because we are genetically hardwired to prioritize security only behind food. Only when you have security can you have everything that we identify as modern life healthcare education stable agriculture democracy i need to feel, need to feel secure i need to feel secure that i can send my kid to a group of strangers in a school and they won't and be abducted educated, by pirates and they're not going to be abducted by pirates <laughs> yes and then i can walk to the grocery store secure my 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 weekly meal billet and I'm not going to get raped and murdered along the way, like. And you're, well, or even if even if they spare you because they're chivalrous, they steal your food. Yeah. Or you know the farmers when they go into town to like get a donut in a in a double double, they're confident that their crops aren't being plundered. This is not how human history has been. This is this no. incredible thing that we invented two hundred years ago. 
and we're still haven't figured it out yet because I'm and not one just, of these. And this is and this is also why whenever somebody is being prosecuted for a crime, they're not being prosecuted for a crime against the individual or the individual's family. They're being prosecuted by, by the, the crown, state. by the state. Yes, the they're state, the crown, the sovereign. Yes, because you because the criminal justice system isn't predicated on ideas of uh, uh, vengeance or payback. That's why there's no there's no blood money in the way but that there is in other tribal societies. In social order. Yes. If I mean, I remember saying this to you a few, a few months ago. I know this is a really grim thing to say, but if you, you said before, you go to the grocery store. If you're raped on the way back from it, society's response is not to say to your husband, "You get to pick one of theirs to rape." Yeah. It is that you sit quietly in the courtroom and hand Jen tissues. We in- arrest the person. We investigate. We prosecute. We incarcerate, and we determine when that person is released. Yeah. We were losing that. If you, lose, if, you, if, if you lose faith in that system, and I think there's other ways to lose faith in that system, for example, if your sure. criminal justice system, for example, starts you know letting people out early or starts letting like murderers roam the streets after being convicted 48 times with something, <clears throat> you know, people start to lose faith in these systems and, 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 and vigilantism is going to be the inevitable result of that as well. There so, are valid criticisms of policing from both left and right, yes. or not policing, but corrections, we'll call it sure. criminal justice in this country. We are way, way, way too easy on many violent offenders. And undoubtedly, we have unequal racial outcomes in our system. Oh, Do you, you, you want to criticize this from the right? You want to criticize this from yes. less? I'm not saying it's perfect, but holy shit, it's better than what the alternative was, historically speaking, only 200 years ago. Yeah. So, like again, 200 years ago, there was not a modern metropolitan civilian police service in the Western world as we would recognize it today. Also, in 200 years ago, a mob like this storming Ottawa would be a coup threat. Oh, what it was, I mean, it would have just been immediately dispersed by the, an army unit, which would be stationed in the capital at all times. Sure, but that's why, the, the, that's why a mob like doing this doing this kind of thing. I mean, wasn't there the uh, the, the orange, the oranges marched sure. in Toronto and like all sorts of like, there's all sorts of stories like this where people were just like, no, there are no peaceful protests. You show up with guns and you you take over. And that's the militia, we call it the militia and they shoot you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the alternative. One of the things, and I know know we're we're switching countries here, but one of the things that was so remarkable to me as a a student of history after Jan 6 was seeing two combat divisions worth of infantry deployed to the U.S. Capitol. That's old school. Like Mm. one of the things Western societies have done is draw a a dividing line between the armed forces of the state and the police of the state. Obviously, they have some common missions and they do work together sometimes, but the police is how the state polices its domestic security mm-hmm. problems, and the military is how it fights its external yeah, that's enemies. That's why the militarization of civilian police forces is a problem. a problem as well. And after January 6th, when I saw 25,000 guardsmen p- protecting the U.S. Capitol, that was why that zapped my head so badly. That was a fundamental breakdown of the basic operating order of a liberal democracy. Some of the European countries are weird, like the Italian Carabinari or um, a French gendarmes. Like some of the Europeans who have much more recent histories of autocracy mm-hmm. blur the line a bit more between the armed forces and police. But the Anglosphere, Western democratic countries, we don't. And I will say this, hats off to the liberals on this one. I am glad they did not use the armed forces, and I'm glad for this reason. You have to keep these two things separate. 
the police protect the civilian population, the military kills the state's enemies. And that I'm gonna... being said, I, I don't think it would have been a bad outcome here if the if the military had supplied some heavy duty equipment. I could have lived with it, but I'm glad we didn't have to. I'm going to quote mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica here. Or I'm going to paraphrase it. It's the best, most best, best, uh, best uh, primer yeah. on 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 politics that you could go go for. It was when Admiral Adama said, you know, he said the police secures the the public and the military fights the enemies. And when the government uses police against the civilians, its own civilians become the enemy. Hmm. And I I think that's like, yeah, correct, Admiral Adama. That is why I'm glad we didn't have to to do that here. One other point I want to make, though, and I... This is, I, I hope the listeners are enjoying this. This is a very free we're, conversation. We're, we're, no, we're rambling. We're good. We're fine. I want to actually give credit to the liberals for something here. Okay. I think my my reputation as a liberal critic is fairly well established. Um, but Cook. I think I don't know. I don't know if they acted legally, but I think they acted maturely. Is it, does, that, does that make sense as a distinction? I think they were horrifically late to realize they had a problem. I mm-hmm. think once they realized they did, they made mostly good decisions. And I would say the, if, we, if we saw more of the prime minister who testified for five hours today in Ottawa, mm-hmm. he would have an approval rating higher than 30%. And one of the things that has really jumped it's- out at me just really hard to give anyone credit here it's it's kind of like giving anita anon credit for giving the military pistols no i know you know what i mean no. like that's like like if everyone had acted even half as appropriately as they were supposed to given the search situation it would never have gotten to this and it could never have gotten to this and to what extent did the emergency was the emergencies act required to clear this protest i still am coming away from this inquiry with no certain answer here i'm not convinced that it was i think that you could have used ordinary police forces and the emergency emergency act still strikes me as an overreach but i also can recognize that there's limitations to my knowledge based on what's been redacted and withheld here which is in and of itself a problem so i have, I have a really hard time giving anyone credit it, feel, it feels dirty pinning a gold medal on anyone after this complete shit show i get it mm-hmm. um i will say this though you know how i feel about Marco Mendocino. You yeah. know how I feel about Christopher Freeland and Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. I thought their their testimony this week was compelling and persuasive. They revealed more thought and nuance than they usually do. And something that jumped out at me in these last couple of days, I want to run through a quick sequence of events here. David Lemeny and Marco Mendocino have had their emails and text messages released. Bill Blair, the same. He looks terrible. There's no good news if you're Bill Blair. But Marco Mendocino and David Lemeny, again, as I've been very critical already, they were weeks behind the curve and figuring out what the fuck was happening. But once they did, I think they responded maturely and rationally. Krista Freeland, not that impressed by what we learned about her. She seemed pretty clued out about all this. Justin Trudeau on the stand today, though, made me think, oh, and Candace Bergen, the conservative MP, who was interim conservative leader at this Mm -hmm. time. A readout of a call between her and the prime minister has been entered into public record. And wouldn't you know it, she was way more mature and cooperative when she thought it was just her and the prime minister on the phone. Her tone was conciliatory, cooperative, helpful, and supportive. 
And then she'd go on Twitter or get up in the house and savage the guy. And one of the things coming out of this is that all of like, as mortifying as it must be for them to have all their private communications being aired publicly, they look better. Hmm. Like we, we found out this week that the prime minister who shows up and gives gender equity talking points at every opportunity can be on the witness stand for five hours straight and hold his own. We found out that Marco Mendocino, one of the least impressive cabinet ministers in this Trudeau government's history of really unimpressive cabinet ministers, in private communications, was showing some maturity and integrity. We have seen that Candace Bergen, who I think clowned herself during the convoy protests, behind the scenes was working to simmer things down and be cooperative here. So it's what? almost like the problem isn't our politicians. The problem it's is politics. System. What? Yeah. That's exactly it, Jen. What the fuck is wrong with our system we're just like the reasonably impressive man we saw on the witness stand today where has that prime minister been the last he, he kind of tried to be that guy at first and then he looked at some polls and decided he had to go nasty and wedge candace bergen was feeding her base red meat morsels in public and being cooperative in private Marco well, Mendocino. I, I, I don't, don't want to give. I don't. I don't want to give Trudeau t- total credit here. He did throw the police under the bus here. He did basically say, like, look, the reason why we have to call the Emergencies Act is because the seventy-three page report operational plan for clearing the protest wasn't good enough, and for some reason, what we came up with after we called the Emergencies Act was better. Like, I, I there was some buck passing on this one. Yeah, I know, but I'm not convinced. Not deservedly. Maybe. Maybe I think we'd have to analyze the two different versions as, as Trudeau himself has suggested to, to, to come to that conclusion. But like what I'm thinking maybe is this was um, not a man who came out and said, like, look, we dropped the ball and we knew that we had to step up. Like that was not the Trudeau that came no, out no, to I testify know. here. I'm not I'm not even necessarily defending the content of what he said. But what we saw on the witness stand today was not the overscripted talking point delivery robot that has been serving as our prime minister for years. I don't know. I think it was pretty scripted, man. I think I'm, not saying, re- I'm, not, I'm not saying it was poorly scripted or that he came off poorly. He didn't. It was a very good performance. But like, this was not the, I'm the leader, the buck stops with me. No, it wasn't we that. Made, we made we made errors and no, we needed to right. co- Like, you know what I mean? Like there, there was not, there was none of that. Let's be clear. No, you're, no, I agree with you entirely. But one of the things I've been told about Justin Trudeau by people who know him a lot better than I do, I've never, I've never spoken to the man in person. I've been in the room with him at, at different events, but I've never spoken to the man. One of the things that have been, I've been told about him is that he's actually a lot smarter than he lets on. He's not necessarily as smart as his fanatics think he is, but what he is, is that he is often flippant and glib and he is overcompensated to control his errant tongue, which gets him in trouble. Hmm. The guy who joked about Putin invading Ukraine because they lost a hockey game or whipping out our CF-18s like their penises, that guy... Thanks for your donation. Bingo. He has learned when he goes off the cuff, he fucks up. So he never does. We only get the prime minister in really carefully controlled settings. He does answer questions often in public. This is something Stephen Harper wouldn't do. The prime minister mm-hmm. at events Absolutely. will take questions from the public, but yeah. his answers are often very much pause, thoughtful nod, pre-approved scripted talking point. 
Yeah. I thought he was better than that on the stand today. Careful. I agree. I agree. I agree. But I, I, and I think, you know, we've seen that the prime minister is capable of being better than he normally gives us. We've seen that Candace Bergen was capable of doing better than she gives us. We've seen that there's more thought going on among some liberal cabinet ministers than they go out of their way to convince us is the case. There is something broken in our politics. And we, I mean, two things are happening, I think. One, it's taking, I don't want to say good people, but it's taking people and it is forcing them to give the worst of themselves, not the best. And I think the longer that goes on, you're going to start skewing your sample. Because if the system is so shitty, you're not going to draw good people. You're going to- well, I think that's already happened. That's it's, already happened. And yeah. I, I, happening, I would say, because it's a process. The more dysfunctional and partisan and bitter and fucked up it becomes, the more you're going to attract the kind of people who think, who hear me say partisan and bitter and fucked up. And they think that sounds great. I got to get me some of that. On that note, Matt, we have been going on for more than an hour about POEC. And I do think there's two other topics that I want to briefly touch on. So I kind of want to pivot unless you have one more other point. I have one more POEC point to make and you will enjoy this. Okay. I cameoed in POEC repeatedly this week. Oh, I remember that. That's uh, right. That's right. You and did. I, and I want to make a serious point. I, in February, emailed the office of the Attorney General, David Lametti, because on an interview with CTV with Evan Sullivan, my buddy, who's just recently took a job in New York, David Lametti talked about the bank accounts that were being frozen. And he used the term pro-Trump to describe these people and twitter instantly exploded with what so if you're pro-trump the government's going to shut down your bank account i emailed his office right away because i hadn't seen the interview and there was no video of the interview yet i emailed his office and i said guys you're getting like i i, I don't remember my exact words but it's basically these are the comments being attributed to you this sounds like it's being torqued to me do you guys have a transcript that you can share me and is there a statement you can send me if there isn't can you come up with one? What the documents in POEC were the internal communications in Lametti's office as they figure out how to respond to my email. That's and always the, fun to get those. It's the thing that's funny is that we have now discovered that the Attorney General of Canada does not think much of me, which fine. You know what? The feelings, feelings kind of, mutual. The yeah. Feelings kind of mutual on that one. I'm going to acknowledge that. But I actually want to hold this up as a success story because you know why these guys don't like me they didn't they they did not think i was going to treat them fairly that's what the internal emails revealed where lametti to his staff says gurney's not going to care what the transcript says he didn't that's think totally not true that's totally not true two, well two things it isn't true if i didn't care i wouldn't have asked for it and even this is just me as a professional even if I'm about to stick a skewer in your, in your back, I'm going to do it accurately. That is the professional obligation that I have as a journalist. Even if I think you fucked up, I will be fair to you. Well, and that's, and that's, that's I think you and I are, are, are very much aligned journalistically in our philosophy, because I think even though we're both conservative rightish in our outlook and perspective, we both highly believe in the importance of fairness. fairness. And I think, and, and honesty. fairness and, and honesty and accuracy. And I think that if, if someone credibly accuses us of being unfair, we take that criticism very much to heart. 
and 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 I I I think that you are not going to find more fair, albeit not friendly. There's a difference between being fair and friendly. Yep. You're not going to find fairer or friendlier journalists. They're fairer, fairer journalists than us. We just aren't friendly. And that's that's the distinction that I'm not sure that these guys can make. Can I make one more point on this, though? And I think this is important. Yes. They got me what I asked for, and they were very polite. Well, good and, for them. And that's why I wanted to say, like, I'm in a weird way. I'm offering this as praise. They don't like me. They don't think they can trust me. They don't think I'm going to be fair to them. I think they're wrong. I think they're badly wrong about that. But despite whatever they might have thought of me. They still did their job. They did their job and they got me, they got me the information I asked for professionally and quickly. And even though it is funny, almost a year later to, to take a little, just a little peek, just a couple of internal emails that come out where it's a, Hey, Gurney's asking for this. And he saw the interview and he wants a, he wants the transcript and he wants a statement. And Lametti's like, he's not going to care what this uh, transcript says. But then he also goes, this is fine. You can send him that. Yeah, so, I, I, Mr. I, I, Mr. I, I, Mr. Attorney General of Canada, you don't like me and you don't think I'm fair. And I think you're wrong about that. But your office cooperated with me. And thank you for that, because I know you guys were under a lot of stress at the time. And I appreciate that you took the time. Yep, fair enough. All right. Uh, I want to move on quickly. Thing. Two things I wanted to note in the, in the news is that I believe Tiff Macklem testified today at the Finance Standing Committee, and he admitted that yeah. uh, stimulus spending might have something to do with our current inflationary troubles. Oh, boy. You know, so basically, Jen- he's he's where we were at, what? 14, Nine 15 months ago, months ago. 15 months ago. Um, you know, you, you and I have written a little bit about uh, inflation. We've had some economists bite back on us and say, no, no, we've got it wrong. There has been a longstanding dispute um, among economists, I think, who are who are torn between saying that the current inflationary troubles are totally global and totally supply chain, um, uh, sort of totally the result of the supply chain issues that we've been having since COVID. And there um, have been the economists who are like, no, no, government spending is a factor here. Like, it's not what Pierre Polyev is claiming, where we're just printing money, but you know, part of the huge amount of money that we put into stimulus spending um, uh, in order to help individuals and companies deal with shutdowns during COVID, you know, absolutely did increase the, mon- the money supply, both directly and also indirectly through, um, I'm going to get Chris Ryland to talk about this, but essentially, uh, it, indirectly by essentially creating, essentially creating debt, creating debt in the book, books for the banks to then chill out. So, uh, you know, and these, these the supply, global supply chain stuff has been global in scope, but so has the spending, the stimulus spending has also been global in scope. So where do you say that this inflation, this amount of inflation is caused just by supply chain stuff and this amount of inflation is, is caused by stimulus spending is almost impossible to do. But finally, we've got Macklem coming out and saying, look, it's both. It's both. There's, there, 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 there is a factor in terms of the amount of money that we've thrown into the economy that is um, partially responsible for 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 inflation, which is, again, where we were months ago, and also, so what? Um, you know, what 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 were we gonna do? Were we not gonna give money to individuals? Were we not gonna give money to businesses? Were we gonna give them too little? Were we gonna let people starve? Of, you know, lack of access to food. Like, of course we weren't. Of course we had to throw money into the system to deal with that crisis. And it's impossible to know, um, even with the benefit of hindsight, what the correct number would have been. Right? Like, you just can't know this. So. A conservative government would have done the same, and it's disingenuous to claim otherwise. But once First again, 50 Macklin... billion stimulus in 2009. Yeah, exactly. 
So, but once again, Macram is really impressing me with his willingness to come forward and say, yep, <laughs> yeah, this was a factor. This was absolutely a factor. And and I, I give him credit for this because he has been, as a, as, a, as a, the head of the central bank, he has been willing to, someone who is willing to say, you know what, we got it wrong. We miscalculated. We miss, we overshot, we undershot. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to be accountable and I'm going to try and rectify it. And to me, that shows a lot of character and for an individual in a really uncertain financial time. You know what? You're being more mature than I am. Um, what? Am I being more mature? That that never happens. Just so that we're clear. Bit of role inversion. Um, so I did not view. I did not watch uh, Macklem's comments. I often do, especially these days. Two years ago, I would not have watched a live stream of the Bank of Canada government like proceedings. And now it's fascinating. Well, it's hot yeah. stuff. Um, but today, I, I, I was all poetic all the time. Um, what I want to say. And it's shitty of me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. I am I am rarely the less mature one. I'm going to indulge myself. We were saying more than a year ago that we were going to have inflation. And the governor of the Bank of Canada was saying, no, we wouldn't. Then he was saying, yes, it was, but it was going to be transitory. And we we're saying, no, it wouldn't be. And then he began to say, okay, it's not going to be transitory, but we'll get it under control. And we said, no, you won't. And then he said it wasn't because of our stimulus spending. And we said, yes, it is. At least I don't know if Macklem, I don't, I'm not sure if Macklem specifically said it wasn't because of stimulus spending, but that Fair was enough, that was the sort of the, the zeitgeist. Yeah. yeah, that was the zeitgeist. Yeah. And then we were saying it's not entirely because of that. Like we get that like Long Beach port of LA is ships lined up for a hundred miles every direction. Like I get it. But those supply chain issues have been easing for the most part. And it wasn't all of it. No. And people were like, no, it is. And now Macklem's like, no. No, we overstimulated. We have watched the governor of the Bank of Canada over a period of about 14 or 15 months retreat step by step to where we were in the fall of last year. Yes, but that's not because we're brilliant or smart. We're just we're just uh, pessimistic. We're just we're just assholes. <laughs> That's all. I'm not going to argue that point. Uh, But what I will say is that we have the advantage. Every decision-making loop, and this probably would have helped in Ottawa and Ontario and and the the feds during the uh, pandemic too. You need someone to be your asshole. You need someone in the loop to be like, yeah, but what if all your assumptions are wrong? Well, and under that, but the other thing I say is sometimes you can make bad decisions because you have too much data. If you're constantly being flooded with data, it can be almost impossible to separate signal from noise. And sometimes people like us who are layman idiots, layman idiot doomer assholes who are far removed from the actual uh, input signals are a little bit better at saying, but the noise, the signal's given us this and the noise has given us that. So I don't know, sometimes that's right. Well, you know the old joke about journalism, right? Where like normally... The, the joke is if one person tells you it's raining and another person says it's not, your job isn't to report both those things is to look out a fucking window and see if it's raining. And that's a direct quote, by the way, that was, I think, a British editor. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's kind of maybe one of those examples where you and I, whereas the economists would be looking at all their data points being like, yeah. is it raining or not? Like, you know, this chart says the 40% chance of rain. This one says 80% chance of rain. You and I are just t- outside and we're like, it's not raining. Like, yeah, and we're, we're, you know, grocery shopping and talking to people yeah. and, like, chatting with people at the cashiers and, like, everybody's complaining about the price of groceries. Like, you know what I mean? Like, whereas these guys are waiting for the next quarter's data sets to yeah. be ready, we're just observing the world 
and ask asking questions we're doing our own research so that's good uh yeah i think you need both to be fair like i'm not of course you do i'm not anti because i'm not like you 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 need you need but i do think that there's a there's a there's an ecosystem in the feedback loop here that's actually pretty necessary and journalism is almost it sounds like journalism is important or something i don't know what there you go i think a a well-led organization will always have what the military would call a red team you need someone in-house whose job it is to upset the apple cart. Yes. And now, you know what? Some big corporations have that, right? Like they have threat assessment groups whose whole You and I job- would be great at that. Could we just be that person? Like like some some major corporation pays us a shit ton of money to be ass- the assholes in the room? To be the red That team. would be amazing. Um, now, I've got to go soon, but uh, there's one other thing. There's been two little, little tidbits in media news that I think I just want to wrap up into one. One, it looks like uh, uh, Bitov and um, Rivet, 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 Rivet yep. have come Rivet, to Rivet. an agreement on who's going to own Torstar. You can hear my children running in the background. That's fine. Um, it is <laughs> going to go it's to Bitov. Bitov. And he's the guy who wants to spend on journalism. Yeah, he's the guy who who's actually clearly uh, got the, the touch of God on him and 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 wants to uh, uh, be a serious newspaper publisher, and he's into it. Hey, he's a Torstar was, freelancer. Torstar freelancer, that's great. Um, and then the other interesting news to come out of that story is Marina Glagovic um, is departing ways with the company. Uh, remember Marina Glagovic was a, yeah, a, that. the main character on Twitter a few a few uh, months ago when it was announced that she was going to become a she had a bad CEO. tweet, right? Pardon? Why was she the main character? She had a bad tweet. She, yeah, she had a couple bad tweets, or she had some some politically unsavory tweets that that the, the lefties in Toronto started to cotton onto. So. Um, they're kind of cheering her her ouster today. So those two things are worth noting. The other little item worth noting is that, of course, um, more testimony into Bill C-11 um, is continuing. No, is it not so C-11 or C-18? Oh, it's, it is C-18, sorry. Um, testimony over C-18 was happening. And Lisa Hepner, who is an no. MP, who I believe is a former Edmonton Journal um, uh, uh, journalist, starts t- saying stuff to the effect of um you know these online news organizations don't cover news uh you know it's 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 the established um uh, legacy players whom whom uh um are, are the ones who are actually doing the news so you know the, all, all the online digital companies are just you know they're just, they're just shitty opinion outlets and as an online company who isn't just does a shitty opinion um hey uh <laughs> there can be value in shitty online opinion um but secondly, it's pretty clear when you listen to her that essentially she has picked winners and losers in her head. She has decided that certain types of journalism are, is worthy of government support and other types of journalism is not. And I just think that that is a really unsophisticated, philosophically problematic position for any former journalist to take. Also, the um, line, like, here's the thing. We are mostly opinion because that's what we can afford to be right now. So please subscribe today. We've been very transparent with people. The more, the richer we become, the more reporting we will exactly. do. And we, right. and we are doing more. We are doing some reporting already. Not a ton. A lot of it is also very voicey first person reporting. But that's still valid reporting. And then there's something else that Anthony Fury notes here. And that is, you know, every claim that she's making in, in her testimony here is false. News organizations oh. don't get hauled before the CRTC. We don't. Even credible legacy news outlets are not accountable to the CRTC. Online news outlets are not all opinion only. Online orgs aren't shielded from 
um, issues like libel and defamation, as we have discovered to our to our considerable uh, uh, unhappiness. Um, you know, we're we're subject to exactly the same standards journalistically and legally that any other legacy outlet would be. We are more um, opinion dependent because we don't have the resources, but that's also true increasingly of a lot of legacy media outlets we could name that as they start to decline in, in their own financial viability, they start to lean more and more heavily on opinion writing as well. So you know, there's just a lot of factual errors that are just um, frankly unforgivable for someone who's a, who's a former journalist and also just a lot of misconceptions in order to um, a further C-18. And I mean, we've written about, I've written about C-18 in the past. Um, I've testified before, before Parliament on C-18. Um, and it was also just clear to me that Hepner is not coming at this as a as a neutral, uh, you know, MP. She's coming at this as a partisan hack, and that's just who she is now. So that's fine. But anyway, I just kind of wanted to thought maybe wrap up those two little bits of media, media news into one. I think that um, maybe we could tie it to the fact that I think Beethoven and Rivet had different opinions on C18. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a weak tie, but we can maybe pull that into into one dispatch. And I think that that uh, we've, is we, a we've very pull long... off weaker ties. We pull um, off weaker ties. But I think that, that gives us one really, really meaty thing on uh, POEC. You probably want to do a bit of victory lap on your on your uh, 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 cameo uh, at the committee. And um, I'll do something on Macklem and the media news. I think that makes sense. So if you do Macklem and media, uh, what I will do is I'll do two-prong POEC. One of them, I'm going to do the, the small victory lap. But I, I'm going to be mature, and I'm going to I'm going to note the fact that this is actually this is actually a good news story because even though the attorney general doesn't uh, like me much, apparently his office still did their job, and that's how it's supposed to be. So I'm but actually. But it's also indicative of just like where these guys think fairness lies. You know what I mean? Like what like they, well, their concept yeah. of fairness is not fair. What their concept of fairness is friendly. I think that's worth noting too. So I don't give them full credit. The modern liberal party in a way that is uh, unique, at least in my experience covering Canadian governments has a very unhealthy relationship with the media. And you and I talked a little, here I am going to air just a little bit of our off the record conversations here, but nothing that'll embarrass you too much. Um, We talked a bit about this, um, We've talked, we've talked a bit about this before, and I don't believe the liberals in their current mindset are capable of thinking criticism against them is fair. And I think this is a, a serious problem for the party. I think it's a problem that gets them into trouble in other areas. I believe these the current modern version of the Liberal Party, somewhat in common with previous iterations of it, believes that criticism of them is always unfair. And it's unfair either because it's wrong or because it's not nuanced or it lacks context. And I think there are the liberals view the world in friends and enemies. And I think the media is largely an enemy. And I think they talk a better game. I remember not not all that long ago when Justin Trudeau was saying, we respect journalists in this country. Yeah, maybe. Look, I got the answers I asked for. I had a very successful communication experience with david lametti's office and i'm grateful for it well but then at the same i was like like we're not supposed to be your friends guys like you're not supposed to like us that's that's (laughs) we're not supposed to be liked we're not supposed to be liked by anybody everybody's supposed to kind of hate us that's 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 the job doing the job well when everybody's doing the job yes 
anyway so i will make that one poetic blurb the meaty one in a weird way jen i don't know if i have a meaty poetic blurb in me for tomorrow when we'll publish this on saturday i think we just do like a like look this is the bird's eye view of what we can take away from poetic and that's it i uh, i kind of had the feel look i i will see what i can come up with but there is a possibility that i'm going to reflect on this overnight and what i'm ultimately going to come up with is going to be we need time to think um there are documents i want to go back and read again there's a timeline of events as i understood them that i want to now put against the actual uh broader events and i don't know if i'm ready yet to commit to writing any broad conclusions um you and i had a really good conversation today we went deeper into it than i expected to but i think maybe i should we let this simmer a bit in our minds i think we need to do something we need to like the lead item on the dispatch has got to be poetic well, I think the lead item should actually be the Lametti thing um, in a weird way. Um, indulgent. No. no. I'm going to write it in a specific way. No. No, Matt. Give me a chance. Bad Matt. No, no, no. I think I have an idea in my head of how to do this. So let me but, write it like, my like, way and then just, see if no, you like literally, it. Literally just what I was saying in the conversation. Like, look, this is my bird's eye view, my takeaway from Poet, just as someone who has not been following it as closely as you. Just do that. No, I know. Anyway, I think that's the should... second longer blurb, but I think okay. I want the victory lap over the paywall. Okay. Well, you know what? Let's talk about this. Uh, not. You got. You got to go do family stuff. I got to do family stuff, and also we got to like put a pin in this because we're like an hour and forty minutes into this podcast, which is it's, fine. I think it's our longest. Yep. It's our longest ever. So, like, let's give our give our poor listeners a break, and we can start this out not on air. Okay. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Jen. Well, in the unlikely chance any of you are still listening, thank you for your time and attention. We hope you've enjoyed this. This is, I think, our longest episode. It's certainly our most raw and honest one. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe today. Help us stay in business and do more of this kind of work. But in any case, have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.